one hand, you want to give the NCAA credit that it's taking another step toward giving athletes the same economic rights as literally everyone else, including every other student. But then you listen to Mark Emmert, who has changed his tune really at every um, every turn in this, from when he first got the job to athletes will never be compensated on my watch, to saying, you know, in the O'Bannon case, under oath, uh, that athletes should never be shills for a product and its exploitation to now saying that they've been trying all along to, to help athletes and they're just, you know, they're getting tripped up by litigation. You know, the NCAA is still going to Congress and asking Congress to bail it out. Uh, all it needs to do is just say that athletes can earn or accept whatever they like in the marketplace, just like any other student can, and they don't have to worry about any state laws. Uh, it's just simple free market economics and it's really, really simple. Uh, but they're trying to put up all these guardrails and all these other restrictions uh, and, and I don't think it's going to work. The only thing that's going to work is allowing athletes the same economic rights as everybody else. Hi, Coach. This is Dan Tudor, and you're listening to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. And the voice you just heard was Jay Billis from ESPN, a former Duke University men's basketball player, coach, and now a commentator on issues that revolve around college sports, especially when it comes to the issue of name, image, and likeness. In Division I athletics, there is probably no other issue that is causing more conversation. There's more of a focus on this, as there has been for the last decade. And it revolves around the ability for student-athletes in the NCAA to earn money for their name, image, and likeness. In other words, to become part of the free market system and to sign deals and do endorsements, sign autographs, and get money for that. This all started back in 2009 when Ed O'Bannon sued the NCAA. Ed O'Bannon is uh, a former college basketball player at UCLA, and he filed an antitrust class action lawsuit against the NCAA uh, in, in which it basically said that uh, it was going to challenge the organization's use of the image of its former student-athletes for commercial purposes. And the suit argues that upon graduation, a former student-athlete should become entitled to financial compensation for the NCAA's commercial use of his or her image while they were at the university. And that went to court. And in 2014, it was ruled that Ed O'Bannon was correct in his filing uh, that holding the NCAA's rules and bylaws that were operating at the time were unreasonable and in restraint of trade and in violation of antitrust law. And that set off the current debate that is happening now around name, image, and likeness to the point where the NCAA has finally said in January they will vote on a proposal to allow student-athletes while they're in college as well as afterwards to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. And Jay Billis is just one of the voices that is involved in this conversation and has an opinion on it, and it's become such a big issue, and it begins to also seep into the world of recruiting and what could be promised to an athlete and what might happen in the world of college recruiting if or when this issue is passed, that we wanted to go to some experts and have them discuss it and talk about it, because I think it's going to be something that every coach is going to deal with. And the reason you'll want to listen to this episode, Coach, is I think you're not 
even beginning to understand the depth at which this will affect you, your job, the way you recruit, the way you handle the culture on your team, and how this could impact individual athlete decisions to come to your school or even stay at your school. It's going to be a big, big issue over the next decade that college coaches deal with, and we wanted to tackle it head on. So we're going to listen to a variety of voices, but I thought what I would do is, as we start this conversation, get you in front of a a person that is, is reporting on this on a regular basis at a national level and is in touch with a lot of athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners uh, in reporting it. And uh, that's Mike DeCourcy. He is with the Sporting News. He has written several articles, which we'll link to in the show notes if you want to go back and read that, on this issue of name, image, and likeness. And when we went to him, the, the goal was to try to get a bigger overview of what this meant uh, across college sports and get his opinion on what he hears and where he thinks this is going and reporting it on a regular basis. Uh, And we also dive into some very interesting side issues that we weren't planning on talking about that kick off this extended conversation we're going to be doing today on this subject. So uh, this is going to be a a long podcast. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. You may want to uh, take it in bits and pieces, but we wanted to really dive deep and give you the best understanding possible on this issue and how it's going to affect you as a coach running your program. Because so often these issues are discussed and debated at such a big level that it gets lost in terms of what it's going to mean to the people with the feet on the street, the people that are interacting with athletes on a daily basis. And coach, that's you. So we wanted to, to dive into that topic for that reason. And again, we're going to start with Mike DeCourcy, the conversation we had with him and his view as a reporter for the Sporting News on where this issue is going and what coaches and athletic directors across college athletics need to be aware of. Well, they appointed from the NCAA a working group about a year ago, and that group obviously had a lot of challenges to go through and create a model that was workable within the college sphere uh, that that would allow athletes to get a fair representation of their name, image, and likeness rights without it being used as a cover for what would be essentially legalized cheating, buying players through inflated NIL payments. So that was what they were endeavoring to do was to try to create a model. And I thought that that Val Ackerman, the Big East Commissioner, Gene Smith, of athletic director at Ohio State were the co-chairs of the group, and they presented their findings, their their outline, I guess is the best way to say it, right. a week ago, and that will now be examined by the schools, and they can make some tweaks to put together some legislation, and then ultimately it will be presented as legislation to the membership at the January convention and some form of this is about 99.99999% going to go into effect for the 2021-22 academic year. At that point, college athletes will be allowed to start businesses. Uh, They'll be allowed to endorse products. They'll be allowed to uh, make personal appearances, sign autographs for a fee, those sorts of things that they haven't been permitted to do basically for as long as we've had the NCAA. 
Right. So you bring up one of the points that the critics of this uh, have have outlined or, or pointed to as what could really cause some cracks in the existing NCAA structure, and you reference it as as the cheating and sort of the inflated values that uh, you know the the kid that uh, has you know a lot of Division One teams looking at him as a football prospect and the uh, car dealership booster uh, says, hey, if you get him here, you know, tell him we'll pay him a million dollars to be on our billboard to advertise our car. And of course, that's that's would be an extreme and not allowed under this working group uh, proposal. But can you sort of talk to what in the people that you've spoken with and, uh, and and had conversations with what their worries are when it goes down that road of what some of the possible uh you know, the darker side of this that, that, you know, they have to work to make sure it doesn't emerge in the final legislation? Yeah, I think it, it really is, it comes down to, it's, I don't think it has to be any more complicated than, than trying to subvert the process by slipping through what another form of, of buying the services of players the, in, using the the cover of the NIL rights in order to do that, and a lot of people who have objected to this to this process to the, to not to the process but to the uh, to the findings uh, basically say, well, just give them their NIL rights unfettered and let's just go. And I, I just I can't even believe that 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 I'm having to counter that because you're saying essentially. We're okay with athletes being bought. And I don't see how that's a, that, that is a service to college athletics. I am fine with them making money. I, I, but the idea that, that a car dealer should be able to sit in on a home visit. Okay, you got the assistant coach who's been the point man on the recruiting or the point person on the recruiting, and you've got the head coach, and then you've got the car dealer sitting there saying, okay, here's what we're going to give you. That's exactly what the NCAA doesn't want. Now, after this has, process has been established and been in practice for a few years, is, a, is, the, is the coach from State U going to be able to go into a home and field a question from a family member, from a, a mother, father, or the player himself, and, and say, uh, you know, how, what, what can I expect from, a, from the standpoint of my NIL? The, the coach could certainly say, well, I can't really get into specifics, but you know, our last quarterback did pretty well. And, and I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with that. But you, the, the coach can't say, well, our last quarterback made $100,000 on this and $30,000 on this and $50,000 on this for a grand total of $1.2 million, So that's what you'll get. They can't do that. That's not college athletics. And, and, and so I think that the, the, the guardrails that that they've suggested are very logical and very plausible. What they're saying is just don't sell using that on the front end. And then once the players are in place, you can't retain using that. You can't say, if you stay here, we'll get you another car ad. You can't say that. And they also, uh, what they can't do is say, uh, well, go to a car dealer and the car dealer pays a local pro athlete, 15 grand for an appearance, but no, for the left tackle for state U, he's going to get a hundred because, you know, we got to make sure that the that state U is taken care of. You can't have that either. These are very simple elementary governors that are put in place to make sure that 
college athletes are getting their worth, which is what people have always argued for. Give them their worth. Give them their fair market value. But now you're saying, no, no, no. You know, now others are saying, well, no, no, if you, if you put governors on it, that means that they're not. Well, that's not true because the fair market value to be an endorser is what it is. It isn't, hey, we like this team, and so we're going to inflate it. And so those guardrails that you talked about, that's the thing that uh, and you pointed out some great things in, in the summary article that you most recently did, which we'll link to in the, in the show notes for the podcast, just the basics of what, what you need to know. The, um, the, the commensurate value, the fair market value that they could go in and let's just say um, do a personal appearance, uh, appearance or appear on a billboard whatever that that uh, that form took that they would then receive compensation for that fair market value is is certainly a good guidance and yet there's going to be i would imagine i'm just you know putting this down the road logically of of you know how things usually evolve once once there's enough gray area to operate within and certainly initially there'd be some gray area here who determines the fair market value and and also from the people that you've talked to are there are there concerns that uh, this is going to be ongoing? You know, every every deal from every competitive school is going to go to the NCAA because a coach complained that you know, hey, that that quarterback signed there, and they're going to get, uh, um, or, or their quarterback is getting five thousand dollars more than what ours is. That's not fair market value. It would seem like it's going to open up the door for a lot of those types of inquiries or cases that, you know, complaints issued to the NCAA, or am I just totally over-imagining what, uh, what would be the result uh, as this moves forward? Well, I think to an extent you are over-imagining because you're talking about coaches turning in other coaches. That doesn't happen. I mean, it hasn't happened before. I don't know why they'd start now, especially over a measly five grand. I mean, with some of the, some of the figures that we've seen uh, that have happened over the years, and have been reported, and there was never a coach uh, who was willing to turn that in. So I don't think that becomes a problem for the NCAA. I, I, I also don't think that it would be as picky as five grand or whatever. I, I, what I'm talking about, when it comes to fair market value, I, I'm talking about literally uh, use, use um, uh, you know, a, a city that has an NBA team and a college team, as an example. Right. And the NBA player goes and does a car dealership uh, appearance, and I don't even know if they still do these things, but uh, it doesn't, you know, it gets fifteen grand, let's say, just use a figure. And then all of a sudden, the college athlete goes to the same car dealer and is getting seventy grand. Well, I mean, everybody's going to know what's up there. It's not that hard. It's really not that complicated. It, it, we we make things more complex in our zeal to attack the NCAA. Uh, two senators sub, uh, and, and a congressperson and a state legislator from Florida. I mean, a whole ton of people lined up to take shots at this proposal by the NCAA because there's nothing in, in American sports now that's easier to do than bash the NCAA. It, it's become really honestly absurd. I, I criticized them for lots of things over, the over time. But now they get criticized for everything they do. And it's no longer realistic or reasonable or fair. And, and it's certainly not accurate. The document that they presented, were there little problems? You know, they, they, put, they put a line in about what to do with 
athletic apparel manufacturers and the question about whether that's an area they want to allow athletes to uh, obtain endorsements. It's problematic for them because of the fact that they have institutional contracts in that area. And so I think it's fair to say, what do we do about this? And they didn't have any answers. And maybe after a year, the working group should have had an answer for it. But maybe because it's so complicated and because their members all have, almost all of them have these institutional arrangements with apparel manufacturers, maybe they needed the input of all of their members so that they could come to a reasonable conclusion on that. And a working group doesn't have the ability to survey the membership on that. It's not really the way the set, the, they're set up. So I think it's reasonable to say, what do we do about this? I, 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 did they have a, a fair definitive answer on that? No, uh, but I don't automatically assume because a question is unanswered that it's automatically going to be answered poorly. I, I think you have to say, okay, you know, what are you gonna do? But I'm not sure that I have a definitive answer on it myself. Right, do, do you get the sense that in general, when it gets to the athletic directors, administration, the commissioners of the big conferences, that they see this as an, an inevitable process that's going to play out and eventually something, well, in your, you know, in your estimation, 99.999% sure that something is going to happen. Uh, the people that you talk to, is that their feeling? And I ask that because uh, very recently the SEC commissioner sort of pushed back a little bit and said, hey, we're, we're, we're a ways from a final product here, which goes to your point that there's still a lot of work to be done. Initial proposal was just for working for, and now it's going to, you know, they're going to dig into the details. But what do you, what would you expect uh, the pushback to be? And also, what are the major points that you, and you've defined a couple of them in, in the conversation we're having, but what are the things that really you feel uh, those administrators, commissioners are seeing as the things that have to get more defined or have to get uh, adjusted in order for this to move forward? Well, I think the NCAA has to explain what mechanism they will have in place for whatever contribution they make to the determination of fair market value. Do they create a separate body within their structure that deals with that question? I think it'll come up often enough that they could start with maybe a co- just a couple of people and then see how many inquiries they get. And if they get too many, they can, they can add a few more. Uh, but I, I do think that they are, they're going to need uh, to have at least one, one or two people dedicated to that uh, so, that, it, so that, that those requests run smoothly. Because remember, these deals have to happen fairly quickly. I mean, I can't be as, you know, as the starting point guard for State U. I can't get, hey, Mike, uh, we want you to come on the weekend and do an appearance because this, you know, this circumstance came up. I've got to get a fairly quick approval on that in, in some circumstances. So it can't take months or weeks or what, or, you know, it, it can take a day or two or three, but it can't take forever to get an answer on something like that. So it has to be efficient. And whether that's done institutionally uh, within the compliance department of my own university. And so I go to my own university and say, Hey, I got this chance to go do this appearance at this car dealer. You cool with it. Uh, here's the figure. Here's what they're going to, here's how long I'm going to be there. And then they sign off on it because they know that it's within fair market value, or uh, do they have to run it up the chain from there on every occasion? I don't think they should have to. That's what compliance departments are for. Uh, so I, I think those are some of the things that have to get ironed out. 
The apparel thing that I talked about is, is, a, is a sticky issue because of the fact that there are institutional contracts. So again, I'm, I'm Mike DeCourcy, point guard uh, at, 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 uh, at uh, City High. Um, and, I, and I've been an Adidas athlete my whole life. I played in all their tournaments. And now I'm, I want to go to um, play at a school that is sponsored by Nike. Can I wear my Adidas? Can, you know, can I keep my affiliation with Adidas? Do I have to wear the Nikes that they provide? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think they have to come up with a, with a response to that, with a guideline on that. Uh, you know, they may leave it up to the individual schools. If uh, State U wants to say, nope, we're, we're a Nike school all the way, and you can't, if you want to come here, you got you to gotta wear them. Um, you know, that, that might be a, a recruiting negative for them, but it's their deal. I, it, all of these things kind of have to be worked out. Uh, and I think that, that those are some of the biggest issues that we need to see resolved between now and December or, and, and then ultimately when they start to vote on it in January. So Mike, two more quick questions and you brought up, you sort of mentioned recruiting and that's uh, what I wanted to, to have you focus on just for a second. Once this is in place, whatever the final details are, uh, so be it. But we, we have a general concept from the working paper that you reported on and that, uh, that has been publicized. I'm just wondering, what, what do you feel, uh, maybe even the people that you've talked to, if they have thought ahead to this, how this plays out in recruiting? In other words, what is the, uh, the thing we're talking about? Once they're at college, they can do this. But in recruiting, of course, they're, every coach – really in every sport at every division level is trying to figure out things to dangle in front of recruits and ways to differentiate their programs from others. And I'm just wondering with this in place, what do you see it doing to the recruiting side of it before they get to a college campus? How are colleges talking about this? What are they, uh, how are they presenting the whole idea that here's how it's going to work at our college if you were to come play for us? About 25 years ago, I, when I was, uh, I can't remember now whether I was in Memphis or Cincinnati by then, but I did an interview with Cliff Rozier from Louisville, and he had started his college career at North Carolina under Dean Smith and ultimately transferred to Louisville after a short period of time. And, and he told me a story about his recruitment. And what he told me was that Dean Smith said, look, basically, if you're an NBA player, look around the NBA. I mean, we don't, you know, we get guys who are pro players into the pros and we, we, we will facilitate the development of your talent. And if you're an NBA player, you're going to get there. And if you don't, we have a network of alums and most of our graduate, you know, you, you go through and finish school and graduate. Most of our, you know, we'll get you, you know, they'll get you a job uh, and it'll be a well-paying job. Uh, and, and at that point, it was what the figure that Cliff used was 60 grand. Um, and I guess now that'd probably be 80, 85, maybe. And within, mm-hmm. uh, it, he, Cliff told me that that's what Dean told him that, you know, you'll, you'll do well, you'll start out well. And then uh, what, what you do with the rest of your career is up to you. And, you know, so I, you know, people think like that this, you know, that the use of one's advantages has, haven't been going on for decades. It's, it's foolish. So if I'm, like, again, if I, you're just using the, I don't like to pin it to any particular school. So I always use the mythical state U. If I'm, you know, if I'm the basketball power state U and I have had players go through and they have done well with NIL, 
I, you know, I may not say this is, this is, you know, you're going to make this much money, but I can say, I believe that I can say that the, the athletes who come through our program do well. I, I don't see where there's any problem with that. And I, I don't think that this document precludes that. I, I would have to specifically uh, ask, or they would have to specifically delineate, but I don't think it does. I think all, you can always use your advantage, just as Harvard says, hey, we're Harvard. Uh, and, and, you know, Tommy Yamaker in a great story in um, John Feinstein's latest book um, told a, a prospect, if you don't come to Harvard, you're an effing idiot. Uh, that's, you know, he was that blunt because it's Harvard. And it's just as if you're the, you know, if you're the, uh, the coach at Mythical State U and you have had great players win, fi- you know, make the Final Four, maybe win some championships – and you have a dedicated fan base that comes to your game, 20,000, 25,000 every night, depending on the size of your building. Uh, and, you, and you have a business community that's invested in your, in your program. I don't think it will, there will be any impediment to you saying, we have a robust, a robust fan base uh, that, will, uh, that you'll do well with. And, and you will, you know, you'll have the opportunity more than likely to cash in on your name, image, and likeness. I, I think that will be acceptable. What won't be acceptable is here, here's a deal from the local car dealer. They're going to pay you, they're going to give you a car right after the lot, and they're going to pay you $100,000 to endorse their dealership for the next two years. That You can't do that. You won't be able to do that. I know for a fact that that's not going to be permissible under any circumstance. Last thing, you, you pointed out that the NCAA is probably the most uh, easily or frequently bashed uh, institution in sports here in the U.S. And I was thinking back to, you know, when we're putting back, you know, posting things for coaches, uh, news on Twitter. And, th- and, and I completely agree that it's almost impossible to find a positive article about the NCAA. Uh, and, and yet, you know, it, it – it seems like they have listened to the market, if we're going to use that term, and they are moving forward with this proposal because the mar- we just reached a point where the market demands it and they're taking action on it. And it seems like they deserve a little bit of credit for at least taking these steps and, and being proactive in trying to define it and, and open it up and give, give athletes the chance. Would you agree? You know, I would be content if they were just not hammered over it. And I, I, I mm-hmm. a news report in which it was delineated that this isn't them doing the right thing. This is doing them doing what they have to do. I don't care if they if, if you think they're, it, you know, what their motivation is they're doing, are they doing the right thing? Yes. What's wrong with that? And why do we have to criticize them even when they do the right thing. Let's, how about we reserve the criticism for when they're doing an NCAA tournament bracket and they put Michigan State and Duke in the same bracket. How about that? I mean, why can't we <laughs> criticize them for that? Uh, why, why, can't, why can't we reserve the criticism for things like how much Mark Emmer is paid? I, I think it, it, his, his salary started as very high and it's become exorbitant and I, I think uh, unwarranted. And I, I don't get involved in telling people they make too much money very often, but that's an example of, of someone who doesn't necessarily need to be paid what he's paid. So 
there are elements like that that I'm perfectly willing to criticize the NCAA on. But they're doing the right thing here. I think they're going about it in a reasonable, although certainly not uh, rapid fashion. I, I, I don't see the need to criticize them on this. You may say, look, if you want to say, okay, you're going to have guardrails, make sure they're not this, this, and this. Make sure it's fair. And, and instead, what we've seen, the reaction in the U.S. government and state governments, most of the media, we have seen just bashing the plan, very little acknowledgement of what it does say or doesn't say. And, and as a result, it will probably not get, you know, we, we, we will probably not get the best possible document. Instead of encouraging encouragement from the various factions that have been critical uh, hey, why don't you do it this way? We get what you're trying to do. Make sure you do this. There's been no positive advice for the NCAA as they go down this road. There's just harangue. And Mike DeCourcy is correct. There are plenty of voices on the other side of this issue who would say the NCAA, even in their most recent proposal, does not go far enough, that they are shortchanging the student-athletes from the full experience of free market capitalism when it comes to their name, image, and likeness. One of those voices is Andy Schwartz. I am an um, antitrust economist in the Bay Area in California. I have been thinking about issues related to the antitrust economics of the NCAA since 1999 and increasingly fusing that with athlete rights issues that I think are inherent because antitrust is a, really about individual rights in, in, a, in a, uh, a large sense. It's individual economic rights, but it's, it's freedom from collusion. It's the ability to go to market and receive your full value, things like that. And I was... Andy goes on to talk about his involvement in three major cases centered around student athletes' rights and the NCAA. And that includes the Ed O'Bannon case, uh, cost of attendance issues, as well as the issue of college athletes competing in the Olympics. He is also part of a group that has founded the PCL, the Professional Collegiate League, which is an alternative to the NCAA. It offers an education as well as earning opportunities and salaries for players. You can find out more about that project at thepcleague.com. And he went on to say that after his involvement in the legal cases, he became frustrated with the process. And that was really frustrating to me because it felt like I had now been spent a decade and a half trying to convince people sort of above me in the power structure that their, that their beliefs about the NCAA as a force for good, that amateurism was noble, that amateurism was um, in some sense ethical and, and moral, was wrong, and that what amateurism is is price-fixing. And is wealth extraction from a group of comparatively poor and um, less empowered members of our society and extracting that, that wealth for the benefit of people who are in power and who are come from wealthier backgrounds and, and so on. So getting back to the name image likeness proposal that's been put forward and now is going to go to the working group and then eventually it looks like it will be voted on uh, come January 2021. Is would you say, um, you know, and I think you made your, your feelings about the NCA fairly clear, but would you say that, okay, that's a step 
in the right direction, they're they're at least hearing the market and hearing you know the complaints and taking some action. Uh, even if they were forced to do it, they're now doing it. Uh, and so a proponent or a supporter of the NCA would say, okay, so this is the maybe this is the the thing that makes uh, people on on your side of the argument happier, and they'll be okay with us. And and you would say what? Okay, um, I know I went really long on my last answer. Um, <laughs> feel free right. to chop it up into bits if you want. Um, I'm going to try. Unfortunately, I have to give you a somewhat lengthy one on this one too. But so, yeah. um, the 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 biggest problem, the biggest problem with what the NCA proposed is a structural, uh, conceptual one, and then the second biggest problem is a um, a viability one. So the structural problem is that the NCA still is not recognizing that athletes have NIL rights. What the NCAA is doing is allowing athletes to make money from their name, image, and likeness, but not as a right, but rather as a granted privilege from the NCAA. That they are saying, essentially, what we've been doing to date which is we've been, to the extent to which your value is blended with our value, we've gotten it all. We still own it, but we're going to permit you to take limited steps for you to benefit more from this. But because it's ours, we're going to tell you how you can do it. We're going to tell you when you can do it, and we're going to tell you with whom you can do it. And that's not a right. That's not how rights work. Um, now, we can contrast that with the NBA, um, where athletes do choose to give up some of their NIL rights to the league, but they do that through collective bargaining where, it's, where, where they're represented in the process. There were a couple athletes on this working group, but by no means was this a negotiation with a, a duly commissioned body that represents athletes. This was a pronounced fiat from above not a negotiated agreement. And that's, to me, that's huge. That, that's all the difference between having a monarchy and having a democracy is a recognition of where, where the rights flow from. Does it flow from the people or the athletes? Or does it come from some sort of, you know, announced divine right? Um, you can tell my history background. Um, and I think that that sets everything up so that then you get to this sort of structural, the structural problem of it. If you look at the agreement, uh, the announcement, they're pretty clear that there are some things that, that are going to happen. And they're pretty clear that there are some things that are going to happen if they can get a congressional uh, a law passed in Congress that will first void the state NIL bills and two, provide an antitrust exemption uh, to the NCAA. And so I have a lot of direct knowledge of both of those. I was the original sponsor in California. In California, we have this weird system. Sponsors are not legislators. Nancy Skinner is the author of SB 206, but I was the sponsor because she was my state senator, and I met her and said, right again, right in the wake of this period of time when I was really frustrated by the O'Bannon um, appeal, you should pass a law using California's antitrust laws so that um, name, image, and likeness rights are recognized. And she didn't use the antitrust thing, but Four years later, she called me up and we worked together and she built what became SB 206. So I was involved in that. And then, of course, my antitrust background. Um, 
So when I read that proposal and I see them say that there are certain parts of this proposal that can only happen if they get this, this uh, exemption, I know exactly what they mean. What they mean is in the O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision, there is explicit language, literally. I mean, I'm not quoting it precisely, but it literally says mm -hmm. that um, once athletes receive their NIL value, there is no basis for the entire amateurism principle. So not just name, image, and likeness, but no salaries either, no compensation for their services, which people derisively call pay for play. But until we call it pay for coach and pay for administrate, I just like to call it, you know, like earning your worth. And, um, and so that's why they say that. And so you can look at what was said this week by Chris Murphy and, and Cory Booker in the Senate, which was essentially, you're not getting this uh, easy. I don't think it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then I think what that does is it takes all of the, what I'd call the good stuff of the NIL proposal. And it kind of just balls it up and throws it into the garbage. It's not, it's fanfic. It's not really going to happen. And what we're left with is the stuff they said is easy to do. And those things are to take the stuff that they've been giving waivers on consistently giving waivers on and just make it allowed. So we have to, it's, it's really just simplifying their life. It has nothing to do with changing athletes' lives. Well, it is a little bit. You don't have to apply for the waiver, but it's mostly making it administratively easier for the NCA. And then the second piece, and this is, this is a real thing, but it's a small thing, is if an athlete happens to have some other talent, like they're a musician, or um, they have developed a app in, that, that works on your phone, they're allowed to put their name on it now, whereas they previously weren't. But it has to be for non-athletic use. And that's not where I mean, that, that is a form of exploitation, but that's like drive-by ancillary exploitation. The real exploitation is in denying the athletes their athletic value, both in terms of what they would earn in terms of uh, pay and also what they would earn in terms of endorsements. And I think that the NCAA's argument is, oh, it's almost like a holding a hostage. It's like, hey, Congress, do you want these athletes to earn something? You better give us this, this exemption. I don't think Congress is going to fall for it. I hope Congress doesn't fall for it because that would be selling athletes very short in terms of their rights, the, the first point I mentioned. But to the extent to which they don't fall for it, then it's not happening. And then this seems like, um, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of the word nothing burger, but, but that's what I would call it. Right. You mentioned Congress a couple of times and other governmental oversight bodies. Um, I'm wondering, what do you view as their role in this? And, and they're in it. And I'm just wondering where... Where, um, how much of it rests on their involvement and their, their action or inaction at this point? Um, SB 206 has passed in California. Right. It goes into effect in the middle of 20, or the beginning of 2023. Mm -hmm. An equivalent, slightly different law has passed in Florida. It's, it's I say slightly because it, it has a few more constraints on the athletes than California does. It's scheduled to go into effect in the middle of next year in 2021. The governor has not yet signed it. It's been sitting on his desk for a while. I know there are other things going on these days, but I'm thinking maybe, I mean, everyone says he's going to sign it. Why hasn't he signed it yet? <laughs> Gavin Newsom didn't take this long to sign, to sign SB 206, but SB 206 will become law in, um, in, uh, 2023 and 
if nothing else happens, the NCA is going to face competition in California. But they have an argument. I think it's bogus. I've spoken to attorneys, antitrust attorneys, because recognize I'm just an economist, about, but the NCA has an argument under the dormant commerce clause, which says essentially they shouldn't have to have multiple state laws applying to their business. Now we're seeing in, in this COVID world that there are multiple state laws that are going to affect when schools reopen, when, whether or not there can be athletic competitions. And you don't hear the NCA saying, well, that makes it impossible for us to start our season. You hear them saying, oh, well, we'll adapt to the different state conditions as they are. I think that's the truth in the NIL space too, but they're not going to make that argument. They're going to go into court and they're going to say, um, well, this is unenforceable. And at a minimum, until you decide we want an injunction, which is a legal fancy term for uh, a halt, like a, um, like a restraining order. And, um, and essentially, I think that they, regardless of the merits of their argument, I think that they will be able to ball, ball it up in court for several years. So if nothing happens in Congress, I think we'll see litigation, whether it's to Florida in 2021 or California in 2023. And that means it's 2025 before any of this stuff happens. And I think that in the meantime, whatever they do will be very narrow and not want to concede the point at all that this law, these laws that they're fighting against might have merit. So I don't think we'll see a lot. And I think that's the most likely thing because, because I don't think you're going to get a Congress that is very divided in times that are very divided and where there's something way bigger than, than any of this going on in terms of the pandemic. And they can barely even, like the House can't even agree to meet via Zoom <laughs> or teleconference. They have to be in Washington right. to, to even have it be valid. It's hard to imagine how this goes beyond the, the idea floating stage. If Florida passes its law, I have to imagine that's going to beat Congress to the punch. So we'll see that litigation. Would you, say, would you say that's even the case, assuming that in uh, the NCA meets in January of 21 and they pass a version or pass their their model of name image likeness uh you're saying that that would uh, that gets wrapped up in in this what you just referred to as well with with yeah, california because, versus because now even, their version even if they were to go to the full extent uh that they have proposed which i don't think they would because of, of this stuff but even if they did it still falls short of both what the florida and the california law require we haven't talked about this at all but there's this really um, prominent and horrible euphemism in in the document which is the word guardrails. Guardrails is NCAA speak for denial of rights. Um, what they what they what they think they're saying is, look, we're worried for reasons that have very little economic validity that if if there's an unlimited NIL market that some that that the powerful football and basketball markets will have a recruiting advantage relative to what they have today uh, with athletes. And so competitive balance will be thrown out of whack. Um, and separately also we're worried that some, some firms may choose to uh, overpay their athletes. Some, some businesses may choose to pay more than what, what the pure NIL value is because there's also there's a value to that owner of that business of having that athlete in that community playing for that university. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this is where I come back to this idea of rights versus privileges. If I have a right 
to fully commercialize my name, image, and likeness. You can't say as a, uh, you can say as an individual organization, well, if you want to work for us, here's the, here's the terms. But you can't collude with all of your competitors and say collectively, we all refuse to allow you to get your full worth. Because that takes away your, your right to play one off or off another. That's how people get their full value. That's how I earn my full value as a consultant is that if somebody doesn't want to pay me, I say, well, somebody else will, and my time is finite, so um, sorry. And then they say, oh, okay, we'll pay. Um, yeah. and, and so um, the California law doesn't say anything about you can impose guardrails. Um, and if there's ever a time when those guardrails say, oh, hey, you, USC athlete, football player, um, you just got to deal with Randy's Donuts in L.A., to do a commercial and we think they're paying you too much. So either, and I think this is what they say they're proposing is either accept less, take it $10,000, not the $50,000 they offered you, or you're ineligible. That would violate, as I understand it, that would violate SB 206. That would be a school denying an athlete NIL money as a condition of eligibility, which is explicitly denied. So I don't think that, that the world, I don't think that their proposal even at its maximum effect has the ability to um doesn't work unless unless the, the state legislature caves and says oh okay it's good enough and then they change the law so so in your opinion then if i'm jumping to the end of that that's why congress should be involved that's why you're going to ultimately need something that sets the precedent nationally um and not have a bunch of uh sort of separate state laws or even if even if you were a proponent of that, that it, what I'm hearing you say is the system probably would demand, hey, Congress, get involved in, and set up, you know, set up a, a standard for this. Am I or I'm misreading that? A little, a little. Um, okay. I think that's why the NCA needs, wants, will demand mm -hmm. an NIL law, and I think that they're more likely to get that than the antitrust exemption. Those are separate right. things. I don't think the system needs it at all. We have 50 different insurance laws in this country. The, every single state, state insurance is regulated at the state level, but mm -hmm. State Farm and, and Allstate and every insurance company that you know operates in all 50 states. It's not impossible to have a thriving industry regulated differently in every state. It would not be impossible for the NCAA to do it. There's a simple thing, as long as, as, long as you don't have like literally contradictory laws where one state says, you must, and one state says you may not do X. It's very simple. You simply adopt the most permissive state's law as your national policy, and boom, problem solved. But that problem solved is for the NCAA to allow athletes to use their rights, and as I said, I don't think the NCAA wants to. They want to have this be a, a noblesse oblige sort of privilege that's doled out, not just because they want to maintain the power structure, although I think that's important, but also because they don't want they don't want athletes to make that much money. I, and one more question, just on on the whole congressional, and, and since we're getting into the politics of it, do you see this as on one side or the other, depending if you are, you know, pro the NCAA position or pro uh, the, the the athletes position? Is it a is it a is this is where are we bipartisan at least in this that you have some Democrats that would side on one side of things, some Republican side on each side of, of the other? Is there a mix, or is is there a clear dividing line even in this uh, 
in this debate between political parties? When I started writing about this in 1999, there was a bipartisan consensus that I was an idiot. Um, the, the Republicans thought, how could you possibly pay, pay people to play, a, 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 play men to play a child's game, or sometimes even to play, pay kids to play a child's game? And Democrats thought, why would you possibly pay, why would schools want to put money into sports when they could be putting it into, into academic scholarships? Um, and, and a lot of us, and I'm not the only one, I think Taylor Branch is the most important author on this. Jonas Sarah and, and Ben Strauss have played a big role in that too with their book Indentured. But I think the conversation over the last 20 years has moved. So now there is a bipartisan consensus the other way, which, you know, they finally recognized that I'm not an idiot. And, um, and Republicans recognize that fundamental to conservative values is that everyone has the right to essentially um, take advantage of market opportunities. That's a very strong free enterprise. You know, the, we market, think that this right. is the engine that we, we, I'm not a Republican, but we Republicans, I'm speaking in their voice, believe that this is, this is what um, America is really about. And that if you really push them on it, all the arguments against it, like, well, we need to subsidize these less popular people with the money that we earn from these more popular, that's not a very Republican argument. Um, and then Democrats have come to recognize that this is really a labor's right, labor rights mm. issue and a, almost a civil rights issue because you have, it's, it's unavoidable, whether uh, amateurism was not conceived of with race in mind. It was conceived of in a very white Europe. It was conceived of with class in mind. When it came to the U.S., we already had legal segregation. Most of the schools that had big, powerful football programs didn't allow uh, black athletes in at all. So amateurism didn't even embed itself in, in American sports as a racist thing. But as segregation stopped playing that role, amateurism has nicely filled the gap and is it's creating disparate racial outcomes, whether it's intentional or not. Um, and that's, a, that's something that's near and dear to a lot of Democrats that when they see, particularly when they see a group of people that in a market economy would earn more, but that we're, we're, we're actually interceding in the market economy to deny them their value. It's like reverse Robin Hood. And so it's become bipartisan, you'll see. So um, uh, Mark Walker, he's a congressman from North Carolina. He is very anti-NCAA and very free market. Um, Chris Murphy and, and Cory Booker are senators, both Democrats. They are, have come out with a lot of, of strong stuff that's anti-NCAA and recognizes the denial of rights. Mitt Romney, um, I think he's a little squishy. On one day he came out and said, you know, we've got your playbook, NCAA, we're coming to get you. The very next day he said, well, what we don't want to have athletes doing is driving a Ferrari around campus. Now this is a guy who has so many nice cars. He has a car garage with an elevator to store all of his cars. And I don't see, think he can see the hypocrisy in when he's saying, I'm allowed to earn that much money at Bain Capital, but these guys aren't allowed to earn it if they're worth it in college. Like, that's where I talk about this idea of like second class citizenship, I think it's important. But the fact that you even have a, a, um, a senator uh, from Utah saying that the NCAA has got to change, I think bodes well for the long run. I don't think it bodes well for the short run. I think we're going to see this all bollocked up and nothing's going to come of it. And that's my prediction. Now, by nothing, I mean nothing more than the, 
the sort of the, the non-athletic stuff um, until, and this is the like until the, the, the final lesson, do, the, until the marketplace actually does its thing. When the PCL launches, I think we're going to shake things up. We are going to provide real opportunity. As the G League does its thing, that's real opportunity. As the NBL continues to do it, we'll see other things. The NCAA's entire structure is built on the idea of depressing the value of the most important input to the sports product that they produce. And that is, it's the opposite of a barrier to entry. It's, it's a doorway to entry. And no one has found a secret sauce yet. I think the PCL will. I think the people will love what we do. Um, but whether it's us or somebody else, it's Congress is not going to ultimately be uh, what's, what, what, saved, what fixes college sports. It's going to be a belief that people are worth what they're worth and a marketplace reaction to that. And in the 21st century, that just seems inevitable. I hope, I hope we are the ones that do it, but I, I definitely hope someone does it. So two more quick questions. I'm going to go back to the idea of guardrails just to throw that argument out because that is, I think, whether it's um, whether it's it's you know with the best of intentions that they're doing this, or there's some sort of evil plot behind the scenes to repress athletes. I here's the fear I think for um, the athletic director, the coach, and which is our world that we deal with, where. They have somebody on campus that is a booster, not on campus, but in the community, a supporter of the program, and quietly they are saying, look, you come to our school, I'm going to put them up on our billboards for our product, our, our institution around here, and we'll pay them whatever he needs. We just need that running back. So um, now, in a sense, that's free market. Uh, because the, the running back still has the choice of, of you know, pursuing that or not. And yet, would you, would you agree or you, would you say that the, the people who would cite that have a point in that there, uh, there is the potential for stuff to be happening behind the scenes with, uh, with I guess, younger athletes that, um, you know, they, they, they would be taken advantage of or, or coerced into something. Or, or all the other things that could go wrong and, and off the guardrails. I'm just wondering what your, you know, to that argument or that type of an argument, what would, what would you say? Um, when you say taken advantage of, I, I normally probably wasn't my that, best word. Probably wasn't the best term. <laughs> right. But, but I think, I think it's a, it's a good point because the NCAA in O'Bannon, as an example, when they, when judge Wilkin asked Mark Emmer, when you say commercial, like you're afraid that athletes are going to be exploited, what do you mean? And he said, well, I think they might be made into pitchmen for products. Um, you know, exploit is a funny word because um, like we who work in the, in the intellectual property world, we think of exploiting an asset as a good thing, right? Like it means taking it, well, even the phrase taking it advantage of, right? right? To take advantage of something can be good or bad. I think athletes will be, taken advantage of in the positive sense, of used in a positive sense, and they will reap the rewards of that. The NCAA thinks of that as, as, as commercially exploiting the athletes, and they're, they're playing with that double word. It's exploiting their, their, their value, but it's compensating them for it, so it's not economic exploitation. And um, so, so I think that's important. But, but what you're essentially saying is, isn't there a chance that that, that, that booster will – 
provide um, some amount of value that's seen, seen as maybe it's unseemly or it's he's being paid for more than just his commercial value, but also his benefit to the school, right? Those are the things you're saying. And like, I think that's the, the that is, that is the athlete's value. And, and I don't even think you can separate it and say, well, there's NIL value and there's athletic value. Um, I grew up in, in Massachusetts and there was a, a Ford dealership in Braintree, Massachusetts called Dave Dinger Ford. And they had this commercial, saw it all the time. And Braintree is like halfway between Boston and, and where the Patriots play in Foxborough. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that if Dave Dinger Ford wanted to use a Patriot player in their ad, and then he got traded to another team, his NIL value to Dave Dinger Ford would drop. Mm. Yeah. What's the point of having a guy from the Carolina Panthers on a local car ad in, in, the, in, the, in New England? And um, that's how I see an athlete's NIL value. Of course it's tied to who he plays for. Of course it's tied to how well he does. Like, you don't see too many bench warmers in the NBA doing, doing commercials. Like, Bob Euchre is, is a weird thing. But other than Bob Euchre, it's kind of hard to think of, like, a baseball player who's like, oh, he was really bad, so he became famous. And, um, and so this idea that you can separate them, I think it's, it's – first of all, it's impossible. And I think it's unethical and, and immoral to impose it on people. Um, and, and what you'll hear people say is, ah, but – like you said, these guys are all free agents when they come into college. And in pro sports, they have a draft. In pro sports, they have a salary cap. In pro sports, they work very hard to make sure that people aren't circumventing the salary cap by paying people more for their NIL. Like if, if Steve Ballmer wants to overpay a, a, a person on the Clippers, he could put him in a Microsoft ad and then overpay him that way, and they look to do that. But that's all collectively bargained, and there is an exchange of service for service and rights for rights that is inherent in our economic legal system that that we think of as as just that isn't happening here this is a, this fiat imposition if the ncaa and i think this actually be bad for america bad for athletes but great for the ncaa the ncaa should tomorrow say we are recognizing a union everybody who plays college football in an fbs program is also an employee of the ncaa we're going to pay you $10,000 salary and we're going to grant you these limited things. And when you're going to sign a CBA that would give them an antitrust exemption because collectively bargained um, uh, agreements are, are immune from antitrust challenge. I think is the way that lawyers phrase it. And um, it would be a very weak union. If you think the NFLPA is weak, imagine a union composed of people who never will last more than five years. Most of whom the good ones are really seeing this as a stepping stone to their next step, et cetera. They could do all that stuff. And then I might not like it, but it would have been just, and it would have been recognizing the rights of both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead what the NCAA wants to do is have their cake and eat it too. They want all of the benefits of a CBA without actually having to give any of the, of the, the, the um, reciprocity to the athletes in a negotiation. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's, to the extent people have a problem with this idea or, or sort of, um, you know, arch their back at it and just, you know, say it just doesn't seem right. Uh, is it just because we have this view of colleges and universities, places of higher learning that just, it, you know, you have, you know, that going on on that side of campus and then potentially a truly uh, commercial 
uh, part of, of campus that's not going on in the math department, not happening with the marching band, that just, it, it, is that why people have a problem with it? Just because it's happening? All this is within the world of, of higher education, colleges and universities? Um, I think it helps the NCAA. It's like a fig leaf. Um, nobody makes those arguments about why professors who work at the medical schools can't earn comparable salaries to surgeons that don't work at medical schools. Um, uh, nobody makes that argument for why somebody who, uh, like Google, Google was invented at Stanford. Google was funded by Stanford. Google's founders were grad students at Stanford and were able to make as much money as, if, as uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who left Harvard to do Facebook. Um, Right, those, those are good parallels. We can see, oh, well, yeah. you should choose. And he chose for time-constraint reasons and, and maybe didn't necessarily want to be there anymore. But the guys at, at Google didn't quit Stanford to start Google. And so there's all sorts of commercial activity at the modern American university. Um, university of California has a tremendous intellectual property portfolio that they pursue litigation against firms if they feel like they're infringing on it. Um, and that has, in some sense, nothing to do with learning, but it has to do with earning and, and, cap and commercializing and taking advantage of assets that the university has. Um, now, I'm not recommending this, but if, if it really were the case that we wanted to treat academia differently than, than commerce, we shouldn't be, the school should give their rights to PBS for free. And, and just, you know, it's a public good produced on campus and it should be broadcast. If you're going to be in the commercial world, and even maybe even if you're not going to be in the commercial world, but certainly if you are going to enter the commercial world, you should play by the rules of commerce. And that's, that's what holds. We have this thing called uh, UBI tax, UBIT, uh, unrelated business income tax. If a university runs a restaurant on campus, the, the restaurant is treated as a for-profit even if the university is a nonprofit, colleges, college sports have succeeded in avoiding that um, that problem. That's, I think, a that's another future thing that Congress may do. Congress may say to sports, "Okay, if you're going to do all these things, you're paying UBIT, which, if you think that everyone says they're broke now, wait till they have to pay taxes." Um, but um, but that's where that's I think where we are on that. The um, like this is the world I, I would just contrast with you. In the, in, the, in the PCL, when our athletes are out there trying to commercialize their name, image, and likeness, we will help them. We will, we will work with partners to let them use both of our brands together. The NCAA is preventing that. And the one thing that we would do where we would step in and say, you really shouldn't sign this, is if we felt the athlete was getting taken advantage of in the sense of underpaid. In the NCAA, they've made a rule saying you can't combine team IP and athlete IP, which is value-destroying, because bringing them together is the best way to generate surplus that then can be divided. And they have said the only way, the reason we would get involved is to make sure you're not earning too much rather than too little. And, and I think that just captures, like, if you're going to play in the world of commerce, you should play by the rules of commerce. And if you're going to be educational, and, and you're going to, first of all, like, schools charge money. Schools charge money for education all the time. It's inherently commercial. Um, there's... Uh, Maybe it's Cooper Union doesn't charge tuition. But other than that, like every, every, every school that I know of charges people to go there. 
And they charge different prices to different people based on their ability to pay. It's like classic price discrimination. If you're going to be in a world where you think it's perfectly fine to pay someone to teach you, then it's just as fine to pay someone to do marketing for the university, which is prime, the primary purpose of a sports program. So in wrapping this up, you've, you've said what your prediction is for how this goes and where the NCAA probably, it, it sort of languishes for a while, uh, getting wrapped up in court cases and you, you kind of explained that, but I would love your outlook on the NCAA itself as this plays out and then and organizations like the PCL start to come up as alternatives. And there's already talk of, you know, the, the five power conferences maybe breaking away and doing their own thing um, because of some of the, the, um, the disagreements with the NCAA. What, what happens to the NCAA in 20, so 10 years from now is 2030. What does the NCAA look like in your, just if you had to predict? Yeah, so if I had to predict, so the PCL is going to launch in, this, in the summer, late, late spring, early summer of 2021. And in our first year, we, we will be mildly successful uh, as a commercial product and fairly successful in taking a lot of guys that would have gone to the Dukes and the Kentuckys and the UNCs and also some of those five-year stars that go to other schools um, that are real campus favorites. They may never make the NBA or they only play for a little while. They play in Europe. So the second year we do it, the ACC, the Big Ten, they're going to start saying, look, we need to compete with these guys. Um, and just like with the um, with COA, where originally the idea was only a few schools would do it, and now more than three-quarters of D1 are paying cost of attendance, um, a lot of the arguments saying, oh, we could never pay them, pay them to play, that will go away. The G League effort that's, that's happening right now isn't enough because those are the guys that, first of all, the G League is already paying them more than, than, than either the PCL or uh, an NCAA school would be worth. They're, they're separate. They're more valuable. And those guys are going to, one and done is going to go away. So those guys are going to end up being, the, the equivalent of those guys are going to be just in the NBA. And none of us are going to be able to get the NBA. The NBA pays, the minimum salary is higher than what the maximum salary in any other, other, other American sport league should be, uh, just in terms of the value. Um, but as, as we erode that next level of talent, the, the Power Five and the Big East and, I don't know, maybe the A-10 will essentially say, just like the, the Autonomy Five did with, with COA, we absolutely need to be able to compete with this. This is the, the, the savings we are saving by not paying value is now exceeded by the loss of revenue that we're mm -hmm. not getting from our TV contracts because the PCL is now the premier college league. And the NCAA, if it's smart, will say, go forth and do. And the tournament will become like an open tournament, the same way that the, the um, Wimbledon went from being a, an amateur tournament to being an open where both amateurs and pros can play. And so in March Madness, you'll get a professional team like Duke playing against an amateur team, team like Murray State. And people will like games like that, it will be even more David and Goliath than now. And upsets will still happen because basketball is a game where the ball doesn't always go in. And people have good days and bad days. And five B-plus players can beat, you know, five A-plus a players if the five A-plus players aren't playing in sync and on any given game. Um, and so the, the, they'll be fine. And at that point, I'm hoping my league, our league, will have – enough brand value and staying power that we can compete. And um, 
Heck, maybe in that world, the NCAA will allow our teams to be in this open tournament too. If the NCAA is dumb, they'll say, no, 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 none of you pro teams will do it. And then the PCL will step in and work with the seven professional college leagues within D1 and create a rival tournament. It'll be way better. And we will invite some amateurs to come play with us because we see that as, as value added. And as long as the NCAA doesn't engage in anti-competitive conduct saying, you may not play in this, this outside tournament, then I think that'll be better for our fans everywhere, despite the NCAA. And then what the NCAA can do is they could become this great organization that makes the money from this open tournament, if they do it, puts on all of these other championships that aren't so valuable, and works really hard to make sure that schools aren't short-changing athletes on their education. All of that effort that's put into saying, oh, you're getting paid too much, should go into you're being educated too little. That's what I hope. That's what I hope we, that's the hope, the change I hope we bring about. But as Andy Schwartz and others have mentioned, for all of these alternate options and ideas to take hold, ultimately, it may come down to getting Congress involved. One of the frequent names mentioned in that debate is Republican Congressman Mark Walker, who represents North Carolina's 6th District. He's one of the people that Andy Schwartz mentioned a few minutes ago. By chance, Congressman Walker is my congressman. I live in Chatham County, North Carolina, which is part of his district. So I wanted to reach out and talk to him about how Congress might find itself involved in one of the landmark decisions that could redefine college sports. Congressman Walker agreed to share his thoughts on where he sees all of this going and how or if he sees Congress getting involved in helping to settle the debate. Uh, after decades of what I would consider abusive behavior, I think federal government had to step into some of this. Uh, and it got to the place now where, or it's reached the place where the NCAA is almost asking for federal intervention because their backs are now against the wall for not handling this over the years uh, they should. Uh, the short answer, uh, after giving the kind of a, a little soliloquy there, uh, is that, that now we have to be an advocate uh, for the student athlete to make sure that this injustice does not continue, but the NCAA will actually follow through on some of their late arrival proposals that they're now uh, at least talking about putting into play. What, uh, so you come out and get into this point, and it's unfortunate that interview the, and you sort of pinned it on the NCAA that they're acting in a manner where, where Congress may have to get involved. Um, what is your read or what have you heard as, as far as um, you know, the, the resistance to, uh, we call it athlete rights or free market within college athletics for them to profit off of their abilities? Uh, how has it gotten to this point? What, why did it get to this point? Well, it reached this point because of the history and the track record of the NCAA talking about or or putting up some kind of faux action steps on their part that they were actually concerned about uh, the rights of the student athletes. When, if you look at the history, none of it ever panned out. Uh, the student athletes, they were more restricted than any other scholarship or non-scholarship. If you look at the 450,000 student athletes that make up the different college levels, close to 200,000 received no scholarship, but they were still forced to adhere to these very restrictive rights that that, that individual, that young lady or that young man, uh, of literally having to sign a moratorium, a document saying that I have no access to my own image or likeness for as long as I'm part of the said university. 
That's why we introduced this legislation uh, back in March, over a year ago now, 15 months nearly ago. And but what really shut it or took it off was when it took off was when California last summer began to talk about this and pass legislation. Then the NCAA realized that the momentum was beginning to shift against them, and they would at least have to up the ante because. After the California legislation, if you and I'm trying to remember the exact last statement that the NCAA said in the press release was this: "We don't believe student athletes should be employees of the university." Well, that was the propaganda they had pitched this whole pay-to-play idea that the majority, specifically people who watch sports or participated in it, um, the majority didn't want to pay for play. They didn't want the athletes, so they continued to to propagate this false message. But after the California legislation, and even after the NCAA made their statements that this would never happen, they began to see the earth begin to move. And since that time, we have been able to build momentum, whether it's on the congressional side, or in the PR side, or in just the minds of people, realizing, hey, we're not talking about the NCAA or colleges paying these student athletes. We just want the free market open to them, like every other student athlete or student or every other American. Right. Uh, of course, the people that would be maybe on the other side of the argument, maybe that's the NCAA people that would support that position are going to say, well, look, if this is if this takes place, it takes the guardrails off. And that's the term that's thrown around a lot is that we need guardrails uh, because then you would have this influence on campuses and yeah, you, potential for deals to get done under the table. Um, your response to that argument would be what? My response would be to you the same response when the NCAA sent their top three legal attorneys to my office in Washington, D.C. It's like, well, that's not happening now, is it? I mean, it's, it's we're, we're AAU agents. Uh, in fact, the day after the NCAA met with me last year, uh, it was when the recordings came out. I believe it was the head coach of LSU talking about uh, finagling the system and some payments there. Uh, we already know that exists. But I'm one that advocates for guardrails. From the beginning, uh, I've said that the student athlete has no access to the logos or the image of the university. Um, but, but at the same time, if this uh, female volleyball player or male baseball player, if they're back up and maybe even going back to their hometown, if they want to go out and uh, market themselves, create a YouTube channel, some of those things, they should have the access and the ability to do that. But let's not pretend that there's no funny business going on right now. Uh, and that's why I do propose. Uh, in fact, I think the NCAA, some of the guardrails they suggested, I would be very much supportive of. Uh, is this something also in, in Washington that in Congress, where there is very little uh, bipartisan agreement across the aisle, is this something that I, I just interestingly, it seems like it, it sort of matches up both sides because you have on the more conservative side, maybe the Republican side, the idea that it's it's an aspect of free market capitalism at work within the college athletic system. And then on the other, the Democratic and more left-leaning side, you have sort of the civil rights aspect, athlete rights, uh, worker rights aspect of that. It seems like it's this interesting marriage of of two different philosophies coming together on this one issue. Is that the right way to read it, or do you see that happening? I guess from a populist standpoint, that would be somewhat of assessment. I, uh, even though I'm considered a, a Republican, even conservative leanings when it comes to fiscal responsibility, 
I, I led this one from a civil rights perspective. Um, as a pastor for 16 years, we worked in the inner cities of places like Cleveland and New York and Baltimore. Uh, in fact, in March of this year, I was the only House Republican to receive the, the United Negro College Foundation President's List Award because some of our work for HBCUs and others. So this is to me, uh, I, 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 I think from the global perspective, you can be correct, but from an individual perspective, um, I hope that I'm not so stereotyped just because I have an R by my name, not saying that you are, uh, that, that we can't uh, see injustice and then act on it. Um, and that's been part of my history even long before I came to Congress. And uh, even going back to the Fab Five, when I, when I first moved to North Carolina in 1991, uh, you had Mighty Duke University, and, uh, and, and I'm a huge Coach K fan. And, and as I was arriving here, uh, they knocked out the UNLV, the Running Rebels, keep them from being undefeated. And then, and then they, I think the next year they took on the Fab Five. And uh, these five young men literally changed college of basketball as we know it today. Uh, you know, they were fashionable, had the, had the long socks, the long shorts, or the high socks, the long shorts. Uh, but two of those guys they don't, didn't really go on to the NBA and really never were able to market that. Yet the head coach, Steve Fisher, within a year or two, signed a multi-million dollar contract. That's all good. We want everybody to win. But that's really what began to, even back 20-something years ago, now 29 years ago, uh, that, that, that impressed me in a way that said, that, that's not fair, that's not right. Right. How do you see this ultimately playing out? I've had people say that uh, what's going to be proposed or voted on at the NCAA in January of 2021, that'll be it. We'll move forward. I've had others say that this could get wrapped up in, in the courts for years and years and years before there's really a final outcome. What your view from, from Congress would be what, to, as this issue plays out, what, what can Congress get done that would put some finality to it uh, in one, one way or the other? Well, a couple of things there. Uh, we have 200 members of Congress are lawyers. Uh, so the chances of it being played out sometimes, uh, they, they enjoy the process as opposed to the solution sometimes. I'm kind of like getting A to get point B. Um, the other thing I will say this, there's there's a, should be an urgency on a timeline here. The reason why, I believe Florida begins to institute this sometime in 2021. So in many of my colleagues, uh, maybe not come from an athletic background or understand the whole recruiting aspect. But you can't have one state having an advantage of recruiting. Uh, you know, uh, Alabama's got a running back, Najee Harris, I think he's coming back, uh, five-star from California. Well, if FSU or the Miami Hurricanes or the Gators or FAU, whoever down there, they're saying, hey, come to Florida. The weather's great and you can make money on the free market. How, how would you be able to – that's, that's preposterous. And, and, and the NCAA has to know that. So if these laws, state laws, begin to start coming effect in 2021 and even, and even later, that's why it's, it's crucial to get this done this fall and get the president to sign this into law because this is one of those areas with the NCAA being a national governing body that you do have to have a one-size-fits-all. Otherwise, otherwise, it's an unfair advantage. Right. And if that doesn't happen, to your point, does it mean that the NCAA as we know it begins to sort of break up into – subsections or breakaways? I mean, is that, is that one of the results of, of nothing happening potentially? Well, let me, let me, let's take it to a different level of under, I mean, you're there, you understand this stuff. It may not be the NCAA's call at some point. These conferences, 
they're, they've got a little strength themselves and television revenue and some other things. It may come to a point they say, NCAA, you know what? Uh, we wanted you to work this out. You failed. We're going a different direction. And if that happens, then you've, uh, you've, you begin to neuter the NCAA as far as its ability to control some of these things. Yeah. The bottom line from you, though, is it sounds like this is it's a matter of fairness in your view that it's if a coach can benefit from some of the things that happens with the team and they can profit financially, then in some way, shape or form, athletes should have the same the same opportunity. Everybody's profiting from this. And, and I, I we did we, we took a deep dive on this for the last two years. I first met with Jay Billis in his law offices in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, January of 2018, and uh, something that had been bothering me, uh, I was in my second or third year of Congress at that point, so we just began to deep dive. We found that 40 to 45% of these major color, color, uh, college revenue-making sports, 40 to 45% come from underprivileged communities. So for some of these families, um, their struggle to even know how to pay the light bill from month to month, much less being able to go stay overnight go out to eat, those kinds of things, where some of the other ones, that would be some of our focus. Uh, they have, so, so, so to prevent these kids, at the same time, can you imagine you're at Tuscaloosa, you get 100,000 people there, your child's on the front cover of the program that day, yet, yet he has no access, or if it's a women's basketball game in Connecticut or anywhere, they have no access to the name, image, and likeness. And I, I just have a problem with that. And you can put guardrails and say, well, they can't qualify with a professional sports agent, but they can go out here and talk to some of this. I get it. Put some fair market value things to it. I don't fix it yourself a little bit. Don't rely on everybody else. But I do believe we reached a place at the crossroads where the NCAA has no other choice but to resolve this. So if it seems like all this is headed toward a legal showdown, I think you're right. And if we've talked to a journalist, an economist, and a congressman, it's probably time to get an attorney's take on the escalating debate of name, image, and likeness, and the right for college student-athletes to be compensated for the NCAA using them for financial gain. So for that, we turn to Scott Bernstein with the law firm of Kaiser Dillon. He and his firm have represented student-athletes in several various lawsuits and other legal matters involving their college athletic departments and the NCAA, and they're gearing up for involvement in this debate too. Bernstein published a widely read online article citing many of what he sees as potential pitfalls for student athletes in a potential agreement with the NCAA. We'll link to that article in the show notes. Here's Scott Bernstein's take on the whole issue. I think the overarching pitfall is the discretion that the NCAA has in terms of finding violations of its rules. Uh, and so it is so, their their policies are so broad and vague that the way at least they've described their expansion of NIL rights to student athletes, it 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 sounds as though it is going to be hard for student athletes not to violate some of the rules the NCAA is going to put in place, the guardrails, so to speak, around the rights that student athletes are going to get. Uh, so the, the example I have in that, in that blog post uh, regards boosters. Uh, so the NCAA wants to restrict the use of payment for a student athlete's uh, name, image, and likeness rights from boosters who just use it as an opportunity to pay 
for play, right? Pay players to come to the, their favorite school. The problem is that the way the NCAA defines booster is if you promote a if you promote a school's athletics program, you're a booster. If you buy season tickets, you're a booster. If you're a sports fan, if you're a fan of a particular college team, I'd be willing to bet there's a good chance under the NCAA's broad and vague definition of a booster that you're a booster. And where I think it comes into, fo- where I think it creates a lot of pitfalls for students are at programs where nearly every small business that has any interest in, in having a college athlete promote their product uh, is going to be a booster under the school's definition. And so the college athlete could get in a lot of trouble for taking payment from a booster. Now, just because a booster, a booster can still pay under the NILs, or excuse me, under the NCAA's uh, policy, because it hasn't been made into rules yet. They're leaving that up to, you know, the divisions, Division One, Division Two, and Division Three to create the the rules. But the way that they are, um, they what they've said is is if it's if it's it's legit, if it's a legitimate payment. If it's a legitimate uh, use of a college athlete's name, image, or likeness, and not just pay for play, then that doesn't violate the rules. But then how do you decide that, right? And, and that's where I think it's, it's troublesome, and they have too much discretion to find the violation. So when you put together human nature, and I've found that most attorneys are good, uh, uh, the, the, you know, studying human nature almost comes with the job because it enables you to anticipate things, coupled with the gray areas that you mentioned with the NCAA. Part of me wants to ask, how does this not go wrong? And, and what I mean by that is that it, it's, there's no way that the NCAA is going to be able to, to uh, predict, determine all the possible scenarios that this could play out and what are the rules associated with that, which means there's going to be all of these things that, that, you know, that, that, fall into that gray area, which is going to be pretty big as it starts. I get the feeling that the NCA is taking more of a ready, fire, aim approach versus ready, aim, fire. And they'll, they'll sort of wrap it all, you know, start to wrap it, wrap it up more over the years as it evolves. But again, from a legal perspective, uh, you have an athlete who gets a deal somewhere, whatever that might be, and it is in that gray area and the NCAA hasn't anticipated it. It goes to the compliance officer at the school. They don't know what to say. It goes back to the NCAA. Well, so does the, does the student athlete get the funds in the meantime? Is it, hey, you did it this time, but everybody else you can't do it the next time? Like from a legal perspective, from your view, how does that all play out? They haven't, so the NCAA hasn't said but here's my guess is that yeah. these rules are net are, are, and you sort of indicated this at, at the outset, these rules might never actually come into effect because there are states who are passing their own name, mm-hmm. image, likeness rules. Florida is, I think the governor is not long time away from signing a name image likeness law very similar to the one that was signed in California 
Um, but the, the one in Florida is going to come into effect in 2021. Uh, Congress is, is, is interested in this issue. And, and so I don't know that the NCAA is anticipating that their rule is going to, they're, they're going to apply the rule. So I don't know if they've gotten that far okay. in terms of figuring out how they're going to enforce this. Uh, because they're expecting Congress to step in and do that for them. Um, and so I think there's going to be some horse trading, right? The, the NCAA wants antitrust exemption. Mm-hmm. They, and so they are going to want something from Congress to create a national scheme for payment to college athletes. Uh, and they're going to have to give up some stuff and make, whether that's healthcare for college athletes or something else, they're going to have to give up something. So I, what I'd be willing to guess is that this, this, there becomes a national model that might not even be driven by the NCAA and that this announcement is more frankly for the headlines um, and to show that they, re- that, that they recognize uh, these rights that college athletes should have. I would, if I were a college athlete, what I would do to avoid the pitfalls is I would look at things like what is the, what is the market for a, a, you know, if your local car dealership wants you to sign autographs for their big Labor Day weekend, I would look at what do other athletes get paid for that? And I would, I would make sure that in order to avoid trouble that I get paid what other, you know, or maybe, maybe a little bit less than what a professional athlete would get paid or that I would get paid consistent with other people. If you're accepting a payment from a booster that is way out of line of what they pay other people to, to endorse their products, then you're going to get, you're probably going to get in trouble if under the NCAA's guidelines. So I would do those sorts of things. I would do my due diligence. I would be very careful. And I would have someone to consult. Um, you know, I, I don't know if schools are going to do this, but if, if, a, if a college athlete can't afford a lawyer and if their endorsements aren't frankly big enough for them to want to pay a lawyer, then, the, then there should be vo- a volunteer legal assistance at the school for those student athletes. Mm. Uh, schools do that all the time in the context of their disciplinary proceedings. So that's not strange. It's not new for them. But they should consult someone and they should involve them. And I think in, 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 in to have someone advise them on what sort of steps they can take to make sure that whatever payment they're receiving does not look like pay for play. And I think because I don't, you know, the way the, the vagueness and the breadth of the NCAA's rules potentially make it difficult. You just sort of take as many steps as you possibly can to protect yourself. Uh, and, and there's, that's really as much, as much as you can do. Um, but I think a lot of students out of fear probably aren't going to be accepting payments. For the average coach that's listening that, uh, does not have a law background, we're going to hear the term antitrust being thrown around the name image likeness debate. Can you give a good sort of quick, easy summary for a coach to understand what, what that term, uh, that, what that term means in the context of the name image likeness debate and, and everything that's uh, being talked about right now? Sure. So 
I, I think what people are more familiar with are the Obe Ed O'Bannon's lawsuit against the NCAA. And basically what that lawsuit was about was that the NCAA was being anti-competitive. It, it was restricting college athletes' ability to make money um, in an unfair way. And, and, that's, and, and so in the, in the context of name image likeness, it's restricting college athletes. Uh, it, it's an anti-competitive measure to restrict how college athletes can make money. The NCAA has always claimed that they are, what they're protecting is very important, and that's amateurism. Uh, and the status quo is, that, that is still the status quo, that even though, like in the O'Bannon case, courts have found that the NCAA is anti-competitive, that they actually are restricting the rights of college athletes, that the only remedy to that, the only, the only thing that college athletes can get for that, that violation of these anti-competitive laws is the is the sort of the cost of college attendance mm. so uh when i say and i trust in this context it's uh it's it's the anti-competitive nature of uh the ncaa basically what they argued in the o'bannon case was there's there was a conspiracy among the ncaa and schools to be anti to be anti-competitive with respect to student athletes. So two kind of overall questions that uh, maybe we'll wrap up your portion of this with these. Is there any way in your view as an attorney that the players, the student athletes lose in this process? In other words, is there any danger as this all unfolds and student athletes are thinking, hey, this is our chance. It's moving in the right direction. And again, I go back to the pitfalls that you mentioned in the article. Where, what do they need to be aware of, or where could this go wrong for the desire among student athletes to be compensated for their name, image, or likeness? I think it's moving in the right direction. This is an acknowledgement by the NCAA that there's there's an inertia towards these changes. It, the NCAA's rules. I don't know if they're going to be the sort of sea change that the headlines indicate. Hmm. But I think that student athletes and coaches can at least look towards state legislatures and Congress, because there, there is a real push and bipartisan support for less restrictions on college athletes being able to make money. So, so if, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say to jump in and ask if it sounds like, and you're not the only one that has sort of pointed to the idea that Congress is going to have to establish some sort of national uh, law regarding, uh, regarding this or some sort of ruling. And I'm just wondering, is that something that, uh, that again, benefits the student athlete? Does it benefit the schools more? Is it is it uh, you know a 50-50 proposition? Is that really is that the ultimate fair way to do it, and does it get them the right way? In I, your, I think, prediction. I think it's better for schools if there's a national system. It's better for the NCAA if there's a national system. 
And you've already seen that I think they are willing to give up, the NCAA and schools, frankly, are willing to give stuff up to get that. Because if the NCAA is in a position where all of the, you know, all of the schools in the SEC have different rules than all the schools in, an, you know, in another conference, the ACC has different rules than the SEC has different rules, you know, it, there is go, they're going to, they're going, that's just going to be a hodgepodge of, of rules they're going to have to try to deal with. Right. And if the, NC, if the Congress puts together a set of national, a national framework for this, then that's better for everyone. It's better for the NCAA and schools because they don't have to deal with a patchwork of laws all over the country. Because right now, all their, their majority of states are moving in the direction, I think, of, of providing some sort of, allowing some sort of financial benefit to, uh, to college athletes. So it's better for the, the schools and the NCAA because they don't have to deal with a patchwork of laws. It's better for college athletes because they have some real advocates on the Hill, on Congress, in Congress, um, for their rights. Um, and again, on both sides, you know, in the Senate, it's Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, Mitt Romney, senator from Utah, are both strong advocates for more rights for college athletes. In the same, there's also bipartisan support in the House. I think, frankly, if, they, if the, the, this epidemic had not happened, it pro there probably would have been a law this year I think. Uh, and so my expectation would be that they would do it next year in advance of when places like Florida's law regarding NIL rights for college athletes would, would come into place or become effective. Um, so it's better for everyone. I think if, if Congress has a national system, it's better for college athletes, it's better for schools, and it's better for the NCAA. And I think there's a recognition of that. So last question, athletic directors, I think, are approaching this, at least the ones that we've talked to, from the standpoint of cautious optimism, like you have voiced, where um, we think this is going to work, we need to do it the right way, we need to have guardrails, and they're looking at it from, I think, the traditional college view that this is college, it's amateur athletics, uh, it's about getting your education, and on down the, on down the line. And I also think there is a concern on their part that they, most athletic departments, most athletic directors don't want that seedy underbelly of college sports to raise its head on their campus. However you would define that, you have plenty of examples in Division One, but it also happens at the smaller schools. Is there a legitimate concern there that opening this up, introducing this while it's good for the athletes, introduces a layer that comes in to represent the, the athletes and uh, and you're going to have things going on that maybe aren't uh, that definitely fall into that gray area that that are unintended consequences of this. That the athletic directors, athletic departments around the country are going to be banging their head against the wall with. I don't think so. Right, light is the best disinfectant. Right. So I think that if uh, these if, if these are if this is not right now the, the system. The CD underbelly is truly, you know, an under, it's in the dark. Um, and this would at least you would be able to hear, have some of that come to light, right? So if, if the concern has been apparel and shoe companies like an Adidas paying for 
athletes to attend the school that they sponsor, the athletic program they sponsor, or, or whatever, then you, uh, that right now is, is, is being investigated by FBI, by, in the criminal world, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if that, if it is made in the light of day, if those payments are made in the light of day, then there's just more information out there and it can be less seedy. Uh, and I think they're able to look at it and, and, then you, and then they can take a look and they can see, you know, why, you know, wh what is this college athlete? Why is this college athlete being paid? They can look at how much they're getting paid. They can know the number. You know, this doesn't have to be under the table. And so I think if it, if it is public and it is over the table, then you'll have le and then I think you would have less problems. So in the same way that that uh, doing away with prohibition kind of did away with the moonshine industry, the same thing would happen here, which is you legalize the ability for an athlete to make money and they won't have to go underground or won't some of the seediness disappears. That's the hope. And they won't and, and you know you won't have this sort of like the the the, the headlines like design you know the Zion Williamson litigation in North Carolina and Florida right now. Like you wouldn't have those sorts of stories of homes being bought and sort of in cash being handed on the table. You wouldn't have the, you know, the SMUs of the world. Um, you would, you would, it would be in the light of day and you would be able to see what's going on and you'd be able to an an analyze it in public. Now, around college athletic departments, there are lots of differing opinions on what should happen. The debate is ongoing and it'll probably continue even after the upcoming NCAA vote on the name image likeness issue at their meeting in January of 2021 that's coming up. We invited the NCAA to comment on the debate, but they declined. One voice that didn't was Tim Selgo, the legendary former athletic director at Division II powerhouse Grand Valley State University and the author of the books Anchor Up, Competitive Greatness, The Grand Valley Way, and his new book, Make One Play, Impact Your Success. I highly recommend both for coaches and athletic directors. Tim talked about what he sees as the pros and cons of the potential changes and what he's hearing on the issue among the athletic directors he consults with now. I think uh, the concern that I'm hearing from athletic directors, and it's a legitimate concern um, as to regards what, what are the boundaries that are going to be in place for this uh, name image likeness thing. You know, if it becomes the Wild West and it's Katie bar the door, it could get very crazy in a real hurry. And I'm confident, though, that the NCAA governance leadership is well aware of the fact that we have to uh, place some boundaries on this and have some guidelines that can, A, satisfy legislators and others that think student-athletes should have the opportunity to use their name, image, and likeness uh, for monetary purposes, and yet not make it become a bidding war type of situation. Uh, I think Gene Smith, the Athletics Director of Ohio State, is one of uh, the uh, people that are uh, co-chairing perhaps the, the, the committee, that's, that's their task force that's researching this. And as he said, the one difference that our um, uh, enterprise has that uh, the normal student doesn't have and or maybe some other things in, in the business world don't have is we have the recruiting factor. 
And it's always been something that as an association, the NCAA tries to level the playing field as much as possible. And, and I think everyone's aware of the fact that the playing field is never going to be perfectly level. However, you need to try to make it as level as possible so that we have as fair a competition as possible. And when recruiting comes into play, if name, image, and likeness becomes the Wild West, and a guy like Joe Burrow, the great quarterback at LSU, let's say he'd have one more year left. Well, I, you know, uh, it would be crazy, perhaps, how much he could monetize his name, image, and likeness uh, compared to so many others. So uh, I think they're going to work on boundaries. My sense is that that is what leaders in the, in the college athletics world want. Uh, they want to have some boundaries. And uh, as a former athletics director, I would tell you, I think, it, I think we're on the right path uh, with this in that I do believe there are some things student-athletes should be able to uh, be compensated for uh, because of their name, image, and likeness, in my opinion. So with uh, some of the examples of the boundaries, because you used that word a couple of different times, and I don't want you to feel like you're speaking for all athletic directors around the country, but maybe just from your own concerns or maybe from what you feel you're hearing a lot out in the community of athletic directors, what, what are some of the boundaries that maybe as an example could, would be smart to put in place from an athletic director's perspective? Well, you've got licenses, licensing agreements that almost every school has today. And therefore, a young man or a young lady that's uh, going to uh, perhaps uh, market uh, something, whether it's gear, apparel, something they produce, using the institution's name, well, they, they, do they have to pay a licensing fee for that? I think the answer mm -hmm. is probably, of course they do. All right, so that would be one type of a, a boundary that they just can't go and use their jersey with the school's name and image, and the school's name image likeness uh, right. uh, on, on their own. Um, so I think that's one of the boundaries that's being talked about. I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways a student athlete perhaps, even at the non-Power 5 level, that maybe uh, having a great college career and perhaps could go back to his hometown or her hometown and conduct a camp of their own and make money off that. I think that personally, uh, in my opinion, would be fine. Um, that, they, that, that would, to me, seem like a constructive way that they could do that. Again, if the campers are all paying the uh, usual and going rate and somebody doesn't come along and, and, and pay a whole bunch of money for his grandsons to go because he likes Johnny, the quarterback, or Sally, the star softball pitcher. Uh, so, again, I, I, I think some of this is going to be like a lot of legislation like this, Dan, and that there's going to be a base piece of legislation in January that will be passed, and then there'll be modifications, of course, as we go. Uh, anytime anything involves money, there are minds out there that aren't thinking of the greater good and, and perhaps are selfish and perhaps are greedy, and somebody will come along to try to abuse the legislation. Thus, 
we've got a big uh, uh, bylaw, book of bylaws of the NCAA. So there's going to be uh, uh, legislative uh, addendums and such to this uh, name, image, and likeness legislation, I'm certain, as, the, as we go forward, uh, because there are folks at certain levels where the money is much bigger that will come up with perhaps devious ways to get around the legislation. So uh, I, I think the, the biggest uh, uh, challenge is going to be the monitoring, uh, but that's always been the challenge with compliance. And so I, I, I don't think, in my opinion, this is going to end up being any bigger of a problem uh, in, in certifying compliance as anything else we've ever done. It's just something that's new, and, and it is a little bit outside of all of our comfort zones. But I'll tell you this, and this is a, a former athletics director who's, uh, uh, you know, a baby boomer that played in the late 70s. So 40 years ago, I played, Dan, at the basketball at the University of Toledo. And in 1979, we played the University of Dayton at home in January. And it was a big game. Both schools were in the top 25. Place was sold out. Game was on local television, whatever it was at the time. It was a tremendous game, and we won by one. And at the conclusion of that game, three teammates of, of mine and myself uh, were out at a, a local establishment. Let's just say we were rehydrating ourselves after the contest. <laughs> and the game was our, like, 12th straight sellout at the University of Toledo. And one of my teammates, uh, after we were, you know, feeling pretty good about the game and talking about it, he says, hey, says, that was another sellout, 12th straight how much money are they making off of us? And I was a math minor, so I said, well, uh, Harv, uh, there's 9000 a game. It's about 5 bucks a ticket, about 45000 a game. So the last 12 games, they've made about a half a million dollars off us. He goes, yeah, and we got $195 a month for room and board. And, you know, as I, as I tell this, I love to tell that story amongst groups of people because that's 40 years ago. I know how that feels with some of these student athletes, and certainly the money is a lot bigger today. So I know how that feels, and of course, back then, as I tell the story, you know, a uh, uh, college co-ed probably walked by and we forgot all about it, never talked about it again the rest of our careers. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's a balance in here that we can find. I really believe that. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not opposed to us going down this road of a name, image, and likeness legislation. So the cynic to that to, to that outlook would say, look, um, and sort of your story proves it, that there's all this money being made. The NCAA now is getting concerned because it is money that uh, they might have to share with the student athlete. Yeah. And so why it should just be free market that, uh, that you know, if they – if the athlete can get something on their own, a deal, then they should be able to do that. Uh, it's not going to uh, impact their college experience. Your answer to that or you know, that line of thinking, which is out there, and it's it's becoming yeah. more and more prevalent in terms of the, the voice that it has. And I'm just wondering what, what how would an athletic director look at that statement and and, and either answer it, address it, or, or, or have a, a comeback against that? Well, free market without regulations has always gotten our country into trouble. This is a capitalistic 
society. We are under capitalism and we believe in a, a free market. However, if you go back in time in history, that uh, we just go back to 2008 when greed overtook the real estate industry and uh, the uh, um, investment uh, firms on Wall Street were creating devices to create more money and eventually the house of cards caved in and we had carnage along the way. And I think that's what you're trying to uh, mitigate here that we can have free markets, we can have some type of name image likeness legislation without uh, greed uh, ruining the entire enterprise. And I, there's some aspect of what is uh, for the common good. And I think you'll find that in team sports, uh, it's very challenging with 18 to 22 year olds who are not professionals and uh, trying to get them uh, to uh, keep their focus on their education when it is uh, a total free market. You know, uh, I, I think we can make the argument, even professional sports, it's not a completely free market. There are salary caps in place in order for them to maintain a, a, a league that can sustain 32 teams or whatever they have and that they can all survive financially and so on. So those arguments have always been in place, of course. And I guess my, my argument to that is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist, but also there needs to be some regulations in place. Human beings are greedy. By nature, we're greedy. And human beings will take it too far. And so I, I believe if, if the correct boundaries or regulations or legislation, whatever we want to describe, are in place, it can be done, and, and it can be done well under the current, uh, uh, you know, uh, college athletics model. Right. Okay, so last question. Two or three years from now, fast forward, this, let's just say, has been resolved. What does it look like? What, what do you see as the college landscape as it relates to name, image, likeness, and, and the world that college athletics, especially at the higher levels, are, are living under? I don't think it'll look much different than it does today. Um, I do think coaches will be tested a little bit more with uh, their teams if one of their student-athletes is clearly – um, uh, capitalizing on name, image, and likeness within the legislation uh, because there might be some other members of the team that aren't quite real uh, fired up about that. I, th I think that's going to be one of the challenges where the rubber meets the road of this. You know, that's always a challenge uh, in professional sports. Uh, the quarterback the, uh, always is paid more than the offensive lineman. Well, in the NFL, the really good quarterbacks, the ones like Tom Brady, are taking their offensive linemen out to dinner every week, and they're, they're treating them to other uh, good stuff because those guys keep them safe. And so I think that kind of dynamic will probably come into play where it, that tends to look a, a, a little professional and that the coaches, though, with 18 to 22-year-olds, are going to have to intervene. You know, that's the difference here, especially 18 and 19-year-olds. You know, we've seen time and again, whether it's the one-and-done rule in college basketball or whatnot, 18- and 19-year-olds rarely have the maturity to handle all these kinds of things. 
21, 22-year-olds? Perhaps I think you could argue they, they do, and they could learn how to handle the, the, these kinds of things. Uh, so there's going to be some locker room management, more locker room management, I guess, would be the term for coaches. But other than that, I honestly, I don't think it's going to – the other thing I think, Dan, that perhaps is a concern of um, administrators is that, yes, uh, the student – the dollars that perhaps their sponsors – are currently investing with the athletics department with partnerships, they may want to shift some of their money directly toward a student athlete. So uh, if I'm at LSU and I'm a car dealership and uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a hundred thousand dollars a year with LSU Tigers and Joe Burrow's got one more year left and rumors are out there. He's thinking of transferring. I may want to divert that and have Joe Burrow come and uh, uh, help promote the automobiles at my car dealership so that he gets the 100000 versus the LSU Tigers Athletics Department. And I think some of that will probably take place. I don't think it's going to be a lot, in my opinion. I think three years from now we're going to look back and say, "Now nah, we tend to go overboard in what we think might happen out there. But, again, with the right structure in place – I think it, uh, those type of situations will be mitigated. And that's how we're going to leave it. There are lots of moving parts to this debate, and we probably haven't heard all of the different arguments for and against the issue that we will over the coming months. But we wanted to do our best and give coaches, athletic directors, and our listeners the most in-depth look at this evolving issue that will affect you in recruiting, regardless of your division level, as we head towards that decision. I hope it helped you understand all sides of the debate just a little bit better. My thanks to Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News, economist Andy Schwartz, Congressman Mark Walker, attorney Scott Bernstein, and former athletic director Tim Selgo for their expert opinions on this matter. I'm Dan Tudor. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, copyright 2016 through 2020. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or stream us on Stitcher, and make sure to tell the coaches in your department about the show. Email the host at dan at dantutor.com and visit the website to access more of the free resources we give to the college coaching community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast.